You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you in the sweet and precious name of Jesus. Oh, Lord, we thank you for that name, what it means. We praise you, dear Lord, that when we whisper the name of Jesus, that, dear Lord, you're there, our great high priest, that mediator, that one who stands in intercession between us and the Father. And we we just give you glory for that. Lord, no matter what problem we may face today, no matter how heavy our hearts may be, Dear Lord, as that song that's popular right now on the radio says, when you can't say anything else, just say Jesus. Because the Bible says that His Holy Spirit makes direct intercession on us when our hearts are so heavy we just can't even pray. Lord, we thank You for that kind of love and mercy and grace and goodness. Lord, we pray today for the power of Your Holy Spirit. To not only, dear Lord, as You've spoken through worship, now speak through your word. And we give you the glory for everything that you'll do today. We pray and ask you to cleanse us. Lord, if there's anything in me, cleanse me, dear Lord, of any thought, any deed, any idle word. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I pray that same prayer for the people who listen to this message. And we give you the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's remain standing. I want you to remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And we're looking at John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And if you're like me, you still got to cough. (coughs) And uh, we'll just, in view of an amen, we'll just periodically cough together. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. I've titled this message, Victim. And uh, let me, I'll explain that as we get more into the message. But in John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in the Aramaic, Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colon, covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? I'd underline that if I were you. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? 
The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd and was, that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. I would underline that too. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Let's pray again. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll bless the word and open it up into our hearts and we give you the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I want to say today, and I, and I need you to listen very closely. Outside of a message on salvation, this may be the most important message that you listen to this year, and it may be the most important message that you hear in your life. So I need you to tune in, and I need you to listen closely, because if you're not guilty of this, you may know somebody that is. And you may need to get on the you may need to get on Facebook, you may need to get on Twitter, you may just need to say to somebody, you may need to call them and say, I want you to listen to this message entitled Victim. Now I want to make some statements and I want you to listen closely and then we're going to get into the scripture. Number one, in 35 years of ministry, one of the greatest deterrents to spiritual growth and the ability to learn from our hurts and our pains that come in our life is due to the fact that often what will happen to us is we take the role of a victim. Are you with me? Say amen. Second statement. By that meaning, we see ourselves as a victim, as a victim of circumstances. We're called in a situation. We're in a relationship where we see ourselves as the innocent one who is not responsible in any way for the breakdown of the relationship, the job, the friendship, or whatever it may be. Now let me repeat that again. By victim, I mean we see ourselves as a victim of circumstances. We are caught in a situation or in a relationship or at a job or in a church or whatever it may be where we see ourselves as the innocent one. A person who's not responsible for the breakdown of that relationship, that job, that friendship, whatever it may be. Now, third statement, sometimes children can feel this way. Sometimes children go, grow up in a home where they feel like they are the victim of an abusive authority, a parent who may abuse them in some way. And often this develops into a rebellious spirit toward all authority. Sometimes women will be like this. You ever heard a woman make this statement? I will never trust a man again. Now usually when she makes that statement, she feels like she is an, she's been a victim of an abusive relationship with who? With a man. So her statement is, I'll never trust a man again. A man may make that say, statement. He may say, I will never trust a woman again. I'll never be hurt by a woman again. And it's usually because he's been hurt. We tend to lump into groups those people who resemble whoever hurt us. Now the tragedy of that is it can be white, it can be black, 
It can be male. It can be female. Your pastor's wife. When I met her in college and I began to know her, she made this statement. She said, I made myself a promise. Now, she had been in an abusive marriage. She was married at 16. She was a widow by 18 or 19. Her first husband had been involved in drugs, selling drugs, kept some of the money, and undoubtedly was murdered in the process. He was, he was run down. When I met her, she made this statement, I will never trust a man again. Wow. And I was falling in love with a woman who was telling me, I'll never trust anybody who resembles you again. You see, she was a victim. Sometimes people feel like they're a victim even of God. Have you ever been angry with God? Upset with God? Feeling like maybe you were, an, you were a victim even of the of God himself with no ability to plead your case, you're caught in a spiritual relationship where you feel like you have no leverage. That was the problem with Job. You know what Job said at one point? And remember, God and Satan were in a, were in a dueling match over who? Over Job. And Job was caught in the middle of that. I'm sure Job felt like a victim. And Job made this statement. At one point, exasperated with God, he said, oh, that God were a man that I might reason with him. In other words, oh, that God were a man that I could sit down and look him in the eye and say, God, why? Why is this happening to me? You see, sometimes even, even with God, in our relationship with God, we see God is all-powerful, loving, merciful, and gracious. And because of that, Sometimes we think when things go wrong in our life, we think, well, God, why is this happening to me? And it's just not what? It's not fair. You see, this was the struggle with Job. Job was in a crisis over the character of God because he felt like God was behaving in his life in a way that God normally wouldn't do. And he was asking God why. I don't know how many have seen the movie God's Not Dead. But it is a fantastic movie. In that movie is a college student who is confronting a philosophy professor in a college campus. That philosophy, uh, that philosophy professor starts the first day of class walking to the lectern and saying to the class, I want you to go ahead and settle this right now. Write it down on a piece of paper. God is dead. And you see some students begin to wrestle and they're, they're, not, they're, they're, they're kind of struggling with it. And finally he makes this statement. He threatens them. He said, if you don't write that statement, I can promise you that you'll fail this course. So more students begin to write down. And there's this one young man, as he sits there, he looks at the paper, he folds it up and he hands it down. When the professor sees it, they get involved in a great debate. In fact, the professor challenges him to prove that God's not dead. And this student begins to address the professor at a certain point. And in an intense scene in that movie, you won't even have to go see it now. In an intense scene in that movie, 
This professor is adamantly opposed to the belief in God. And as the student, this young man, begins to confront the professor, finally at one point he says, why don't you believe? And the professor gets angry and says, because God took my mother when I was a boy and I've never forgiven him since. You see... Sometimes in our lives we feel like a victim. Sometimes we may feel like a victim even of God. I wrote this statement down. Ministers get caught in the crosshairs of of people's anger with the authority of God. Sometimes people get angry at the pastor because they have a problem with God and I guess I'm kind of the representative and so they attack me. I went on to make this statement. In 35 years of ministry with an earned doctorate and about 30 plus years of counseling, once someone becomes a victim, they are almost impossible to help, to counsel, or to pastor. Now I want to read that statement again. In 35 years of ministry with an earned doctorate and years of counseling, once someone becomes a victim, they perceive themselves as being a victim, they are almost impossible to help, to counsel, or even to pastor. Let me read on. Because they feel no responsibility in the problem, they perceive themselves as innocent, Pointing the finger at anyone and everyone but who? But themselves. And the man we're looking at today was such a man. If you look there in in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5, Jesus went up to Jerusalem on the feast of the Jews and it could have been any feast. It could have been the Passover. It could have been Purim. It could have been Pentecost. But it was a time where John is telling us that this city of Jerusalem was filled with all kinds of people. It was full of people because it was a festival. It was a time of celebration. People were pouring into the city of Jerusalem. It was a mass of humanity. And John goes on to tell us in verse 2 that in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, there was a pool which is called in the Aramaic Bethesda, a five-covered colonnade where people would gather. John gives us a geographical and a theological curiosity. John says in the midst of this mass of people that had poured into the city of Jerusalem, there at the sheep gate where people would bring sheep for sacrifice, there near that gate was a pool. And he said near that pool were all kinds of people. He says they were lame, they were blind, they were paralyzed. He said it was just a mass of hurting people that would gather there at Bethesda at this pool. Now, Sheila and I, a few weeks ago, in fact, our granddaughter's sick, Emily, uh, Emily's little girl, Emma, Emma Grace. A while back, Emily called us one night and she said, uh, I need y'all to meet me at Batson. We met her at Batson. And while we were at Batson, there came a point in that crowded ER with all of those children, I wanted to stand up and say, my granddaughter needs help. Can we get some help here? only to realize that about the time I was looking, there was a little girl throwing up in a cup while her mother was wiping her brow. There was another child that was just laying limp in the arms of her mom, and she was, and she was beat red. 
You could tell she had high fever. And all of a sudden it was like I began to become aware that there were a lot of hurting people in that, in that room. I wasn't the only one. But these people were gathering. They came for therapeutic, medicinal healing. They believed that there was something to this. And, and you may say, well, that's kind of strange. Well, we go to hot springs, mineral springs. We go to a lot of springs, don't we, believing there's some kind of health benefit from it. Now I want you to look at something. I want to ask you a question. Where's verse 4? Verse 3 here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Verse 5, who was there and had been an invalid for 38 years. Well, that's strange. Somebody, somebody ripped verse 4 out of my Bible. Now, I want you to understand something about the Scripture. Anytime you see something like that, you need to look at the footnotes. You need to begin to cross-reference. You need to begin to understand why it is that way because older manuscripts did not contain verse 4. And so when they put the Bible together, they recognized this and they made a note of it at the bottom or in cross-reference or in some way. It, to me, it just adds to the integrity and the credibility of God's Word. My friend, don't never be alarmed by that because that just speaks to the integrity of the book that you're holding. But anyway, the pool of Bethesda was spring-fed. In other words, there was a spring feeding into it and periodically that spring would bubble up. And when that water bubbled up, people began to clamor into the, into the pool because the writer who, who added verse 4 said, hey, let me tell you why this man had been hanging around there all, at this time and all these. Let me tell you why people gathered. People were gathering because they believed that when the bubbles came up, if they were the first one in the water, they would be healed. You may say, well, that's a superstition. But to them it was hope. I remember a friend of mine whose son, and you've heard me talk about this, drowned in the Ross Barnett Reservoir. He was on his way back to seminary with his wife. They had one beautiful little blonde-headed boy, a little blue-eyed blonde-headed boy. He was loading up the luggage. She was saying goodbye to her parents who lived on a houseboat on the Ross Barnett Reservoir. As he was doing that, and she was doing this, all of a sudden he heard this scream and he went running and his little boy with a little Fisher-Price toy like rod and reel they had, been, they had bought him the day before, had dropped it, and when he did, he leaned over, fell into the reservoir, and by the time they found him, he was floating. They pulled him out. They began to try to attempt CPR. They called the ambulance. The ambulance personnel, the EMTs, began to do CPR. They carried him to University Medical Center. They began to do everything. We as church people everywhere began to pray, but ultimately there was brain damage, and in essence, he never came out of it. I remember, because I was an EMT, I remember one time as a field medical officer and being in that field, I remember going and staying with them periodically because they had to take a tray, they had to clean his trach out. They had to monitor his breathing and do all of this. And they were doing it there in their apartment there in New Orleans. As I sat there with them, tears began to flow down the cheeks of this young man that was working on his THD. He's a brilliant man, president of the student body at New Orleans. And he looked at me with tears trickling down his cheeks. One of the most promising students. And he said, Jeff, I wouldn't want nobody else to know this, but it's become part of his testimony now. He said, but I've been so desperate to save Josh, to see Josh come out of this coma that he's in. He said, I've gone everywhere. I've gone to faith healers. Uh, 
these faith healers and he said, I've gone down and asked them to pray for my son. You see, he was looking for any hope. And that was these people. And this was the man in John chapter 5. He was a single case. He had, been, he had been an invalid, helpless and hopeless for 38 years. It was a tragic life. He was a broken soul. And by all indications, this man was a victim. He was a victim. So we see, we see the scene here, but I want you to see the Savior. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, it said, when Jesus saw him <coughs> lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him what? Let's say it together. Do you want to get well? That's a strange thing. This man here, Jesus said, in 38 years he's been sick. Jesus perhaps had seen him before. Maybe as a boy coming to the temple. He had seen this man. This man was a fixture around Jerusalem. But the Bible says in verse 6 that when Jesus learned of his condition, not so much his condition, but the time that he had been in that condition, 38 years, the majority of this man's life, he had been an invalid. Much of his life, he had learned to live with his disability, his plight in life. He probably thought, this is my cross to bear. This is the cards that I've been dealt. I'm a victim. The only problem with this was that this was never God's intention nor God's will. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 6... He asked him, do you want to get well? And it seems that that seems cruel. It seems insulting. It seems as if Jesus is uncaring. But how do we know that this was not the right question? And how do we know that this man was not a victim and that this was not God's will for his life? Look at verse 14. Skip down there. Do you see it? Later, Jesus found him where? He found him at the temple and he said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. You know, I wrote these down. Listen, number one, Jesus was saying, Sir, you're not a victim according to verse 14. In verse, seven, Jesus, in verse 6, Jesus said, Do you want to be well? In verse 7, this man immediately, you know what he does? And this is what happens when you're a victim. You start pointing everywhere else. This man said, Lord, what do you mean do I want to be well? Every time the bubbles come up, every time there's an angelic disturbance of the water, in that moment, as people sick are crowding in, they get in ahead of me, Lord, because I don't have nobody who cares enough about me to help me get in the water. Jesus, I'm a victim here, and it's not fair. Verse 14, Jesus finds him in the temple and says, let me tell you something, you're not a victim. You're not a victim. In fact, in verse 14, he says, this is your fault. Number two, this was not God's will. His problem wasn't verse 7. His problem was verse 14. Do you see it? In verse 7, he says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one who cares enough to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. I'm just a victim of circumstances. 
But Jesus says to this man in verse 14, he says here in verse 14, see, you're well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And what he's saying to them, what he's saying to this man is, sir, you're not only not a victim, this is the result of your choices. This was not God's will for your life. His problem was not verse 7. His problem was verse 14. He wasn't, number 3, he wasn't a victim. This was the result of the choices that he had made. Some people don't need to be coddled. They need to be confronted. You know, if you looked at this man outwardly, if you went to the pool of Bethesda and you looked at this man, you'd think, man, poor guy. What a bad rap. Life's not fair. You might even look up toward heaven. You might say, God, it's not fair that this man should be in this condition this long. He's a victim, God. In fact, I want you to note something. Note his company. Look at verse 3. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. His peers, his associates, his company, he's surrounded by people who are what? Victims who probably all feel like they're sick. Let me give you a principle here. Hang your hat on this one. When we feel like we are a victim, we surround ourselves with other people who they too feel like they're victims. That's what we do. I'm sure around the pool of Bethesda, they had a lot of complaining. They probably said, you know, nobody cares about us. Nobody's willing to help us. Poor old us. Misery loves what? What does misery love? What does misery love? Company. You ever notice that when we are a victim, we tend to go to other people who are victims because we go, we go to the bitter and the broken for comfort. People have a marriage problem. You know what they do? They go to the girls down at the office, down to the club, at the gym, those people who are divorced or in a bad marriage, and they go to them for understanding. Why? Do they want understanding? No, they want somebody on their side. They want one of the old girls who's been through a divorce, who's picked herself up to look at him and say, well, I wouldn't put up with that. You need to just tell him what you think. You need to kick him out, throw him out, do whatever. Men do that and women do that too. You see, we want somebody who will tell us what we want to hear. When you and I become a victim, our thinking goes bad, doesn't it? We don't go to the spiritually mature. We don't go to godly men and women who have built a strong marriage or built a strong home, a godly home. Instead, we go to failures. We go to other people who are victims because, hey, we want people to tell us what we want to hear. And you know why? Because we don't want to feel guilty. This, I wrote down here that you and I, and some of you in this room, could be fantastic counselors if you could understand what, what I'm saying here and what I believe the Scripture teaches. When someone is taking the role of feeling as if they're a victim, the danger is that you and I become an enabler. Are you with me? In other words, number one, you can sympathize to their detriment. Poor thing. I feel so sorry for you. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't deal with that. I know what I'd do. I don't blame you. You have, listen to this, you have every right to feel the way you do. You see, there's a danger. You and I can enable a victim 
we can sympathize to their detriment, number one. Number two, we can coddle rather than confront. You see, Jesus realized there was more to what was going on in this man's life than what met the eye here. People might have looked at this man and said, this is not fair, this is not right. They might even have been angry at God. God, this is not right. This man's been this way for 38 years and he can't even get anybody to help him. There's nothing fair about this situation. This man didn't need to be coddled. He needed to be confronted. Number three, the danger, the great danger, when you and I enable a victim to feel as if they're a victim, the results may be unbearable to the innocent people who surround them. People who feel like they're a victim make everybody else around them who love them feel miserable. Number four, we convince them they're no... Listen to this. We convince them they are no longer accountable for their fault, their situation, because they're a victim. They have a right to feel that way. You see, when you say you're a victim or someone says, I'm a victim, what they're saying is, I'm innocent. That's what they're saying. I've done nothing wrong. I'm a good person. This is somebody else's fault. It's not my fault. I'm just a victim here. Maybe a child in an abusive parent situation may feel that way. But let me tell you something about counseling in 35 years. I have never been confronted with any situation that somebody could point their finger and say, it's all his fault, it's all her fault, it's all that person's fault, it's all that situation, making themselves completely innocent. Number five, we think we're helping when in reality we're doing great harm and may even interfere with God's law of sowing and reaping. You see, what I've discovered is this, and I wrote this down. Remember, they help to sow some of the bad seed as well. And if you coddle them and enable a victim, then what happens? They never come to term with their part in why this thing is falling apart. Does that make sense, Miss Bobby? Listen, relationships never break down with somebody being 100% at fault and the other person being zero. Never. There's always a level of responsibility to be felt by everyone involved. I wrote this down, number six, family, friend, and parent need to be careful that we don't become an enabler. Helping people to feel like they're a victim. In Jesus, in verse 14, look at it again. In verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple. He looked for him. He sought him out. He said to him, see, you're well again. It's as if he, said, he knew this man's life. He said, you ain't always been sick. You're well again. Now, see to it. See you're well again. Stop sinning. Or look at that. Something worse may happen to you. Jesus went, he found him, and again, this man probably thought, it's not my fault, I'm a victim, I'm innocent, life's been cruel, I've never gotten a break, I don't like my home, I don't like my job, I don't like my wife, I don't like my husband, I'm just an innocent victim who always seems to fall uh, due to other people's problems. No. Jesus is tough in verse 14. What he's saying to this man is he's saying, sir, you played a part in this. Quit blaming. Listen, you know what Jesus was saying? I don't think he was, I don't think he did this, Reggie. 
But you almost get the feeling that when Jesus found him in the temple, he looked at him and he said, listen, you're well again. You've gotten another chance. Stop blaming my father. Quit blaming my father. And quit blaming me. Strong. You played a part in this. Number two, you're responsible and accountable. Even if it's 10%, take responsibility for that 10%. Number three, Jesus was saying, stop the sinful behavior that has put you in the situation that you're in. Quit doing that. I wrote this down. You see, the man saw his problem as a victim. And look at verse 7 again. Sir, when he was asked, do you want to get well? He said, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus in verse 14 says, sir, you're not a victim and that's not your problem. Your problem is not that. Your problem is sin. Jesus saw that man's problem as himself. He was saying you are where you are not based on anyone else nor their lack of compassion. Verse 7 is not your problem, sir. Verse 14 is. You see, victims tend to attack. Listen, a victim, once you feel like you're a victim, you attack the church. Why do you think the church is attacked so much? Oh, those hypocrites down there at the church. Those uncompassionate people. You know what I found in 35 years of ministry? Ledge looked at me one day and Ledge made this statement. He said, Dad, she's crazy. I said, Son, we're all crazy. We've just got a bunch of people that are all struggling and wrestling. Hypocrites, come on. One more won't make a difference. You see, the reality is, how often do people who feel like they're a victim attack the church and the ministry for a lack of compassion? You see what he was saying in verse 7? He was saying, Lord, it's not my fault. I'm innocent here. And the problem is, is all of these people that are in this city for this celebration, none of them care about me. And they don't care about anybody else. They won't even have enough compassion to help us get in the water. Let me make a statement. You finish it. You made your bed. Lie in it. Came home one day. I was walking down the hallway and you see our bedroom. And I looked and the sheet was hanging all the way down and laying on the floor. The bed was made. Now, Sheila accuses me of, when I make the bed, of pulling the sheet to my side. And, and she accuses me of during the night wrapping up and rolling up in a ball in the sheet. And she gets over there. Of course, she has these hot flashes. Now, for those ladies who understand and those men that are married to women with hot flashes, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to be laying in bed and your wife's going to have the covers up here. And she's going to be shivering. It's so cold. Cut the heat on. And then in the middle of the night, you're going to wake up and the sheet's going to look like a parachute. And they're going to go up and they're going to hover and they're going to fall down on you. She's having a hot flash now. And it's just up and down. Well, I looked and the sheet was hanging over there. And, I, and when Sheila got home, I said, what, what's the deal here? I said, look at this. I didn't make the bed. You see, sometimes people are laying in a bed they made. Let me give you a principle here. People who are victims, who fail to take responsibility for their actions, 
tend to be blinded to the needs of other people around them. You see, this man forgot his environment. He was in a crowd of suffering, just like I was in Batson ER with my little granddaughter. But he was blind to the people that were suffering around him. Listen, the reason that he was blind, he was a victim. And because he was a victim, he was looking at who? Who do victims look at? They look at themselves. They don't look at anybody else. They're not, they're blinded to the needs of people around them. This man forgot his environment. He was in a crowd of suffering. Was he helping anybody else? Absolutely not. He was watching out for who? Did he say, Lord, look at all these hurting people. Look at all of us. Lord, we can't get anybody to help us. He didn't say that. He said, Lord, I can't get nobody to help who? Me. That's a victim. I go back again to Batson ER. I wanted to say, listen, my granddaughter's sick. When all of a sudden I realized God opened my eyes, there were sick people all over that room. Many of those children were far sicker than my granddaughter. You see, sometimes we get blinded. When we feel like a victim, we're blinded to the people around us. You got a bad marriage? Hey, you think you got a bad marriage? I can fill this room with people that have a lot worse marriage than you got. You got it tough? You think times are hard? I could fill this sanctuary and every sanctuary in this city with people that have it a lot tougher. You think your childhood was tough? We've got senior adults that have beat any story that you possibly can tell. You see, what happens to us sometimes when we become a victim, we're blinded to people around us. You know one of the things I say at Southside, there's no coddling here. People who are not gentle with the homeless, people who are not gentle with the community, people who are not help, uh, gentle to people in this community, we don't want them here and we don't need you here. That's the bottom line. Why? Because victims, when you're a victim, you're blinded to everybody else. All the suffering. Now I'm going to close in a moment. In verse 6, it sounds cruel until you read verse 14, doesn't it? In verse 6, you see Jesus looking at this man. This man is all twisted, laying there by the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus looks at him. Imagine that. He just kind of leans in. He probably did about like this. He probably leaned down there and looked at him, smiled and said, Do you want to get well? Do you want to be any better? Do you want your life to turn around? Do you want your situation to be different than it is right now? Do you want to get a different crop than the crop you've been getting? Do you want that? And I believe Jesus, with those piercing eyes, looked deep into the soul of that man. And he said, because we know the truth. The truth is, is your choices and your bad choices and your sinful behavior and your lifestyle. And the result of that is, is that you're where you are right now. Do you want to, do you want to get better? Do you want to get well? Quit blaming my father. Quit blaming God. It's powerful here. Then take responsibility for your part in the relationship, in the marriage, in the job, in the situation, in parenting, in the financial mess, whatever it is. Jesus says in verse 8, get up. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. Pick up your mat. Pick up the bed you made. Take responsibility and start walking and let go of it. You agree? 
You know, in Psalm 51, and I want to encourage you to read it this week. Let that be your devotion, Psalm 51. I think it's some of the most beautiful words ever penned in the Scripture. It is the example of a saint of God taking responsibility for his actions. You remember, Psalm 51 is written by King David. Let me tell you when he wrote it. You know when he wrote it? Was when Nathan the prophet came in. And man, you can just see old David, buddy, he was... Man, he was... Uh, let me get me a chair here. Old, 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 old King David, buddy, he was, he was sitting on his throne. In fact, you know, I wanted to make a chair and put it up here with all kinds of little pink ribbons and bows and balloons and stuff. And, and I wanted to make it look like a throne and then a lot of little lower chairs. Because see, when we become a victim, we're the center of our world. We're the center of attention. And so here's David. And one day, Nathan comes to the door, the prophet Nathan. Secretary comes in and says, King David, Nathan's here to see you. King David says, send him in. He's like Charles Stanley coming to visit. King David said, oh, Nathan, have a seat. King's sitting on his throne. Nathan looks at King David and says, we've got a problem in the kingdom. David says, what is it? Tell me about it. And Nathan, the the prophet says, well, there's a, there's a, there's a little small family and, and they have one little ewe lamb that they've been raising from the time it was real, from the time it was born. That ewe lamb would, that man, listen, that man would take that lamb and hold him in his arms. It was a family pet. Even at the table, they'd let that lamb eat out of their plates. They loved that lamb. King David nods his head. And then Nathan says, but you know, you know so-and-so, that rich farmer, there was a, you know, he's a rich rancher, and he has thousands and flocks and flocks of sheep. He has sheep, he has lambs, he is a very wealthy man. He's a, he's a go-getter. Well, he had a big celebration, a big party. And, and King David, I hate to tell you what he did. He sent a couple of his old brute servants over there, they took that family's little ewe lamb out of his yard, they butchered it, and he served it to his guest. Hey, watch this. What? King David, King David stands to his feet. He slams his fist down on that, on that desk. He looks at Nathan and he says, you tell that man he ought to die for what he's done. He ought to restore it fourfold. He just explodes in anger. Nathan sits there for a moment. I don't even think Nathan moved. I don't even think he got up. Then Nathan leaned across that desk, looked at this red-faced little Israelite Jewish king, and he said, Thou art the man. God gave you a kingdom. You had everything. But you went and stole Uriah's wife, slept with her, and you're guilty. Now let me, let me tell you what Nathan, let me tell you what King David would have done had he been a victim, the victim mentality, which Psalm 51 is not that, and we'll close in a moment. David could have said this, that mean old Nathan, he just doesn't understand what I've got on me. I was the youngest son of Jesse. My brothers didn't even respect me. When Samuel came to anoint a king, my father didn't even bother to call me. In fact, Samuel had to ask my father, Jesse, don't you have any other sons? As if my father forgot. 
Oh, oh, yeah, 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 uh, Samuel. Uh, uh, help me here, guys. David. I killed Goliath, delivered Israel, and all I got for it was the wrath of King Saul running from his jealous tyrant. Tyrates. I spent early many years hiding in caves. I've had a tough life. Marriage, I had Michael and Michal. She made fun of me, Nathan, when I was worshiping one time. Abigail doesn't have any time to, for me. She's a busy, she's a busy woman running the affairs of the monarchy. I'm tired of going to war. I'm now in my 50s. I'm going through the change. My skin is like paper. My head is balding. My hair transplants are not taking root. And my Viagra doesn't work anymore. I am wasting away. But then I saw Bathsheba on the roof. B.B. King was playing the blues. And Nathan, I am a victim. Let me tell you about victims. Victims never repent because they don't think they have to. When you think you're a victim and you're always the victim, you won't repent of nothing because you don't think you have to. In John 5, 14, Jesus told him, get up. You know what that meant? Get your act together. He told him, he said, in, in, five, four, he said, in, uh, in verse 8, 5, 8, then Jesus said, get up. That meant get your act together. Pick up your mat. That means take responsibility for your part and cut this lame, worthless apology mess out and be responsible. And he said, get up, pick up your mat and walk. You have to understand something. Verse 14 hasn't happened yet, but Jesus knew it. And when he said walk, he meant straighten up, quit blaming others, quit playing the victim and take responsibility. A lot of times in marriage counseling, people will say, you know, someone will come. One person will come. Well, I, I had to come by myself. Well, let, let, okay, well, let's, let's pray and talk. You don't know what I've been living in. You don't, you don't know what I've had on me. That, that person is so mean. I'll go, but they're not here. We, we can't talk about them. They're, they're not here. Let's talk, about, let's talk about you. Yes, but you just don't understand. If you just knew what kind of person they were... But I, I know, and I, I hear you, but that, that, that's not why we're here. We can't talk. They're not here. We can't do anything about that. We just need to talk about you. What role did you play in the demise of the marriage, in the relationship of the job, of the church, and the situation? Number two, are you failing to take responsibility for your part, which will result in you repeat, listen to this, if you're 10% at fault in something, you're going to repeat that 10% in the next relationship, the next... Hey, listen, the probability of divorce increases every time unless people come to terms with why I failed. What was my part in this situation? Number three, step out of the victim chair. Get up out of the victim chair, take responsibility, and get some help. And not from the guys and the gals at the water cooler where you work. Number four, quit scapegoating. Scapegoating means to pile all of the guilt on one person instead of taking responsibility for your part. Let's stand. <coughs> 
for those in this room, for those in this room, you know, you know my relationship with my mom. My mom lived, my mom lived in a lot of, in a lot of pain. When I say pain, my mom lived in a difficult, she grew up in a difficult childhood. Uh, she suffered a lot as a child, even an abusive relationship. And I need everybody to listen. I need you to listen. I need you to listen. She lived in a childhood where she suffered greatly. She married when she was 16, moved to New York, and was in a bad marriage. Ended up with one little girl, and that marriage fell apart. And my mom talked about so many times about being a single mom in the mid-1950s. It was a different ball game back then. No government helps, nothing. My mom talked about waiting tables, making ends meet. My mom lived her life in the past. She'd talk about her childhood and all the pain and the hurt. She'd talk about that first marriage. My mom lived in the past, and my mom was a victim. She felt like she was always a victim. Let me fast forward. We were getting ready to go to Zimbabwe, Africa. So our family had a get-together. And our family, when you brought them together, a lot of times it just explode. Anybody got those kind of families? So we brought, the family came together because they were going to tell us, Sheila and I and our four kids, we love you, pray for us, and send us on our way to, to Africa for four years before we come back home and see them again. So all the family was gathered there. And before long, something broke out at the, at the table during the meal. And ultimately, everybody got mad, and my sisters went pouring out of the driveway, slinging gravel, and everybody drove off, and everybody was upset. And I, and I was just so down. And I walked around, as everybody was driving off, I walked around... And when I came around the house, my mom, little old frail woman, about 90 pounds, with all of her problems, was taking her fist and beating the brick wall and saying, "Why, oh God, why do I do this? When I saw that, it delivered me. Now let me tell you why, because I, I, knew, I now knew, my mom knew, she had a problem. What she was saying is, I'm not the victim now. I may even be a little bit of the perpetrator here. I'm guilty. I've got a problem. And let me tell you something, when a victim comes to that point, you want to shout hallelujah. Oh, praise God. Now they recognize they're looking in the mirror. Number two, I now knew that she recognized her role, her part, her responsibility, and the breakdown of our home. She was destroying our home. Number three, I found healing that day, and I helped her find healing. And before she died, led her down the Roman road, and I'll see her in heaven.
There's only, look this way, there's only been one victim. And every person in this room was a perpetrator. We all shared in that. And his name was Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you. And Lord, we love you and we praise you. Lord, I believe that you can take this message today. And dear Lord, you can use it. I think you'll use it through the internet. I think there are people that are sitting in their homes, sitting in their cars, sitting in a dead, dried up life who feel as if they're a victim. They have twisted and distorted the truth. They have lived their life pointing their finger at everybody else. It is time to take responsibility for their part. I pray, dear Lord, today that you would use this message. I know this message won't make me a pin up in their house. I won't be uh, the most loved pastor. Maybe not even by some in this room. But God, you cannot help us until we step out of that victim role. We get up off that victim chair and we say, God, it's not my, it, it's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, that stands in the need of prayer. I pray, dear Lord, today that if there's one here that is wrestling in a difficult marriage, a difficult relationship, a difficult job, a difficult situation, and they feel as if they're a victim, I pray, dear Lord, today that they would take responsibility for their part. And they would quit pointing their fingers at anybody else. And they would begin to ask, what can I do to turn this life, my life, and this relationship and this situation around. Whatever it may be, it may only be 10%. They may only feel like I'm only 10% responsible at 10%. If I had 10% cancer in my body, before long it'd destroy my body. God help us to be responsible. Father, I pray, dear Lord, today, if there's one here that doesn't know you, I pray, dear Lord, today that they would see and understand that you love them that you paid the supreme penalty. You're the only victim who's ever truly walked this earth. Completely innocent. Taking all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our sin to the cross of Calvary. Paying our debt. By your stripes, we have been healed. You're the victim. You were the victim. You were the victim of our sin, of our rebellion of our irresponsibility, of our guilt, of our total depravity. You were, you were the victim, Jesus. But we thank you that you're also the victor. That you paid the supreme penalty for our sin. You went to the grave. The grave could not hold you. And three days later, you walked out of that grave victorious. And you will give us that same victory when we come before you in simple childlike faith, when we take responsibility, when we say, I'm a sinner, the mistakes that have been made, I made them. I'm not pointing to anybody else. God, forgive me. Cleanse me. Come into my life. Begin to turn my victim mentality into victory. Lord, speak to us. And we'll give you the praise. And we pray this in the name, sweet name of Jesus. Amen.